High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org slash students. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. You must Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. I'm your host, Karina Longworth. And today, we bring you another story from The Seduced, a miniseries related to my new book, Seduction, Sex, Lies, and Stardom in Howard Hughes's Hollywood. This book will be released on November 13th, but you can pre-order it now from your local bookstore or Amazon.com. Seduction begins with a prologue set at the Ambassador Hotel in 1925. The Ambassador Hotel was where Howard Hughes first settled in Los Angeles as an adult, and 1925 was the year he did it in. But the story I chose to set the scene of the book doesn't directly involve Hughes. I was looking for something that would set the scene and help explain the environment Hughes was deliberately fleeing Houston and running towards. I stumbled on the memoirs of a woman I had never heard of before, named Frederica 
Sager Moss. Born in 1900, in her 20s, Frederica worked as a story editor at Universal's offices in New York City. And then she bounced around Hollywood as a screenwriter. In 1925, she was working on developing a feature for Greta Garbo at MGM when she got invited to what she thought was a dinner business party at the Ambassador Hotel. The Ambassador Hotel in the 1920s and the 1930s was, for Hollywood, akin to what the Chateau Marmont has been for the past couple of decades. A hub for business and pleasure, where famous and powerful people can go and somehow alternately enjoy the thrill of being on display and let loose under a scrim of discretion. Accounts of the ambassador's social scene from the 1920s often describe a parade of stars. And certainly, the famous and the wannabes alike went to the ambassador to be seen. Signed to a contract by MGM on Christmas Eve 1924, Joan Crawford, then still called Lucille LeSueur, was a nobody going nowhere. She spent much of the following year dancing at the ambassador's nightclub, the Coconut Grove, forcing her bosses and the local reporters to notice her by any means necessary. My skirts had to be a trifle shorter, my heels a little higher, my hair a tint brighter, and my dancing faster, Crawford later remembered. She won over 100 dance contests at the Coconut Grove. More importantly, as she put it, Hollywood saw me in action, and starring roles followed. For every story of a girl coming to the ambassador to take a step above their station, it was also a site where women sold themselves in other ways, or were sold. Frederica Sager Moss, though not much of a drinker, was a regular on the same social scene as the future star of Mildred Pierce. She had even helped Lucille LeSueur transform into Joan Crawford by remaking the actress's wardrobe. Sixty-five years later, Sager Moss would write about a dinner party at the Ambassador that took place in 1925, which, by design, devolved into an all-out orgy. As she wrote, With the dessert, a group of starlets, nightclub belly dancers, and ladies of the evening made their entrance. They were greeted by halos of drunken delight, and room was made for them at the table, one girl to each unescorted male. Pretty soon, the men started disappearing with one or two girls, heading for the bungalows. You'll have to buy my book, or hers, to learn more about what happened that night. But suffice it to say, the recollections of the then 99-year-old Sager Moss were invaluable to my understanding of the sexual politics of 1920s Hollywood. Frederica is essentially a forgotten figure of early Hollywood, and her book, The Shocking Miss Pilgrim, is not widely known. So today, I'm going to share with you some of Frederica's stories, some that served as useful background to me in writing Seduction, and some that have nothing to do with Howard Hughes and his milieu, 
but which speak to the experience of being a woman and trying to have a career on one's own terms in 20th century Hollywood. Which is the real subject of my book, too. Join us, won't you, for the story of Frederica Sagor Moss. Frederica's parents had met in Russia, and her family had settled in Manhattan by way of Ellis Island. Frederica, the youngest of four daughters, was born in a railroad flat near 101st Street in the summer of 1900. One of the most formative experiences of her childhood came in 1915, when a teacher took Freddie and her classmates to see the birth of a nation. The 15-year-old girl was gobsmacked by the drama of the epic film, but after her students had written reaction essays based on pure emotion, the teacher explained that the movie presented a biased view of history. As Freddie later wrote, I learned from that lecture that concessions often have to be made in the interest of box office receipts and prevailing public opinion on slavery, including the opinion of D.W. Griffith. There were no good slave masters, the teacher claimed, only better ones, for slavery was totally evil. Accept nothing, she would say. Examine, challenge, think it out for yourself. These lessons, that movies must make concessions to popular opinion, and that young women like Freddie should learn to think for themselves and challenge authority, would prove to be incompatible once the young woman got to Hollywood. Freddie had always wanted to go to medical school, but her family thought sending a girl to medical school was a bad investment. That with her looks, she would do much better marrying a doctor than trying to be one. But since there was no marital prospect as she was finishing high school, her parents insisted she go to college to study something. So Freddie chose journalism. But Freddie hated her time at Columbia. And a few months shy of graduation, she quit when she was offered a job as secretary to the story editor at Universal's offices in New York City. She was 23. Her direct supervisor fell in love with her, and the boss... In an effort to escape from the temptation to break up his marital home, resigned. His replacement was a drunk who went missing on the job. Universal was suddenly desperate for a story editor, and they offered the position to Frederica. She played what she thought was hardball. She told them she'd take the job, but only if by the end of the year they sent her to Hollywood. I want to write, she told them. Universal agreed, with fingers crossed. The story editor position at that time mostly involved finding novels and plays to option so that someone else could write them into screenplays. She spent much of her waking hours chasing down the galleys of new novels and seeing plays. During her year on the job, Freddie fell in love with a novel called The Plastic Age, an expose of college athletics written by a professor. 
Freddie thought it would make a fabulous film about young people. She purchased the film rights when the book was still in galleys to make sure that Universal got a jump on a property that was sure to be a bestseller before other studios got wind of it. She was extremely proud of herself and excited about watching this content she believed in become a movie. And then, Carl Lemley, the head of Universal, told her to sell it off. His son had told him it was a dirty book. And as a newly appointed representative of the so-called clean picture campaign to give the public the impression that the studios were no longer peddling smut, Lemley couldn't have his studio making a movie about a football star partying with a co-ed floozy. So Freddie reluctantly sold the rights to an old friend, a producer who had recently left Universal for preferred pictures, the BP Schulberg Company that had recently signed Clara Bow. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious, but with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com remember. netsuite.com remember. netsuite.com remember. Soon after that, Freddie reached her one-year anniversary as story editor, which meant that, based on their deal, Universal was supposed to send her to Hollywood and allow her to become a screenwriter. But apparently, the studio never had had any intention of doing that. On day 366 after she took the job, Freddie was not handed a train ticket to Los Angeles. Instead, she was introduced to her replacement and asked to train her. Unceremoniously cut from Universal, Freddie ended up making her way to Hollywood on her own. There, she summoned her courage and called Schulberg's office to ask for a meeting. She then proceeded to pitch herself as the writer of The Plastic Age. She had been thinking about the adaptation for a full six months since she had read the galley, so she had plenty to say. Schulberg hired her for the job on the spot. A female screenwriter was not an anomaly in 1923. 
In fact, Sager's arrival in Hollywood coincided with the waning of what had been a glory period for female power behind the scenes. A decade earlier, an actress-turned-screenwriter and director named Lois Weber had been one of Universal Studios' most valuable assets, both in terms of her talent and the publicity potential she represented. Weber had been a stage actress, but she semi-retired when she married another actor, Phillips Smalley. To alleviate her boredom as wife to an itinerant actor, Weber began writing motion picture scenarios. She was as surprised as anyone when these scenarios began to sell. Not that I doubted their meriting production, she explained later, but I imagined they had to be introduced to the scenario editor by some person with influence. I was wrong, and the check I received testified to the illusion under which I had labored. Weber soon signed a contract with the Rex Motion Picture Company. Working in collaboration with her husband, Weber wrote and directed one film a week for almost two years, with Lois and Phillips often appearing before the camera as well. Though Lois was the driving creative force, both husband and wife were usually credited as co-directors. By 1913, Rex had been absorbed into a new conglomerate of independent companies called Universal, which, under the auspices of Carl Lemley, had taken over a plot of land in the hillside just north of Hollywood, on the other side of the Cahuenga Valley. Lemley had set up shop on a ranch large enough that he was able to promote his new fiefdom as Universal City. To the extent that it functioned like a real city, it was a utopian one. In September 1913, Lois Weber ran for mayor and won. A New York newspaper claimed she was the only female mayor in the world at the time and called Universal the only bona fide woman's sphere on the map, where women do all the bossing and where mere man is just tolerated. That's all, just tolerated. At Universal, Weber was able to make a number of social issue-oriented dramas on topics ranging from poverty to birth control to social justice reform. As Freddie would learn, Weber was not the only woman who found that getting a foot in the door of making movies was easier than wedging one's full body into the room. Few women who worked as writers and directors found career longevity behind the scenes. Sagor's idol was June Mathis, who had ridden the Four Horses of the Apocalypse, discovered Valentino, and became the first female executive at MGM. Mathis's career ended when her life did, in 1927, when she suffered a stress-related heart attack. For Freddie, though her script for The Plastic Age was well-liked by the studio and the movie was a hit, there was no permanent job on offer at Preferred Pictures. Her first salaried position came through a contact she had made in New York, to the writer and director Edmund Golding. Golding had written a play which Freddie had seen, in her capacity as story editor, called Dancing Mothers. She had met with the writer to give him some notes and constructive criticism, 
and he had taken her advice with his rewrite. The play became a Broadway hit and was turned into a film starring Clara Bow. By the time Freddie found herself unemployed post-plastic age, Golding was an executive at MGM. She called, and he agreed to meet with her and give her the inside track to a job in the story department at the studio, as a thank you for her help with Dancing Mothers. Freddie was put on the team designed to develop and write material for Norma Shearer, who Freddie described as a plain-looking gal who was absolutely transformed by camera magic. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. At MGM, Freddie would come to learn the extent to which Hollywood was a playground for male ego and id unrestrained. She was a sexually active girl about town, so she was not surprised to learn that Hollywood was, as she would describe it later, a bacchanal. The master of ceremonies was my depraved friend, Edmund Goulding, with Marshall Nealon, another director, a close second in command. These two men initiated more young women, and men, into more kinds of kinky sexual practices than one can possibly imagine. This is actually how I discovered Moss's book. I read the unpublished memoirs of Marshall Nealon, in which he took credit for not only introducing Howard Hughes to this debauched mid-1920s Hollywood party scene, but also claimed he had given Hughes the initial idea to make Hell's Angels. I then went looking for more information about Nealon, who I'd probably read about in the context of general silent film history, but didn't really know much about. And in my searching, Moss's book came up. Men like Goulding and Nealon presided over a party scene that was initially inherently underground, because Hollywood the city had done such a good job of legislating against immorality. In the teens, there was hardly anywhere you could get away with publicly sipping booze near Hollywood, which was itself officially dry, and the bars downtown like the Alexandria closed promptly at 2 a.m. So Marshall Nealon and friends discovered the Vernon Country Club, located across the border of a wet county five miles south of downtown LA. When the local bars kicked them out, Everyone hiked themselves to Vernon, and soon with the place packed to the rafters, it would roar on into the night, 
Neelan remembered. Many a guest has been startled upon making their exit to walk out into the bright sunlight. Thus, local temperance, which predated nationalized prohibition, helped to institutionalize the idea of an underground social scene, in which part of the fun was in taking extreme measures. If you were Marshal Nealon, you drunk drove at 2 a.m. to the city of Vernon. If you were newly famous and newly rich like Mabel Normand or Wallace Reed, you first showed your newfound power by stocking a home cellar with the help of a bootlegger, And from there, it was a slippery slope to experimenting with black market drugs. If you were new in town, like Howard Hughes was in 1925, and like dozens of new young women arrived in Los Angeles every month, one way of trying to make a good first impression was to make your way into the hotel bars, speakeasies, and house parties frequented by the newly established movie elite. Freddie cited her friend, Joan Crawford, as an example of a girl who went the so-called sexual route in search of stardom, but still only succeeded due to a mix of natural talent, gumption, and iron will. But it wasn't just that women in the film industry were subject to be subordinated sexually by men. Men used their power just as cavalierly and possibly more insidiously at the office. Freddie found that many of the films she worked on went out into the world without her name on them. In one instance, Freddie was given nothing but a title, his secretary, and was told to turn it into a vehicle for Norma Shearer. Freddie ginned up a workplace romance in which a man in power and his subordinate initially hate each other and then fall in love. She was the first to admit that she was far from the first writer to come up with such a thing. But still, she wrote it. She submitted it to her supervisor, a man named Carrie Wilson, and he made no changes to it. Except that he replaced her name on the script with his. When Freddie protested, Wilson promised her that she'd get an on-screen writing credit. But she didn't. And, she would later claim... It was far from the only Norma Shearer vehicle that she wrote the story for, but failed to receive credit for. After The Plastic Age was released by Preferred Pictures, Freddie did receive credit on one of her Norma Shearer pictures, Dance Madness, but she was not credited on at least two additional films she wrote at MGM. The Shearer vehicle, The Waning Sex, and Flesh and the Devil, the American debut of Greta Garbo. She wondered if the fact that she was working in the unit overseen by producer Harry Rapf was the problem. So she went to another unit producer at MGM, Hunt Stromberg, and asked if she might work under him instead. Freddie had no idea that in doing so, she was making a major misstep. She didn't realize that producers were a boys' club within the larger boys' club, and that they stuck together. When Rapf discovered that Freddie had gone behind his back to request a transfer, he lost any goodwill he had ever had for the young lady writer. And he hadn't had much, given that Freddie was known for standing up for herself and her work, and if she thought that one of her male collaborators was doing the wrong thing for a given movie— 
she would say so. When her contract expired at MGM, it was not only not renewed, but Freddie learned through Raft's secretary that the executive had spread the word around the studio and other studios that Freddie was a troublemaker. The waning sex was released after Freddie was released from duty at MGM, and in order to see it, she had to surreptitiously drive to La Jolla to attend a preview screening. It was as the credits rolled that she discovered her name had been taken off that movie, too. She drove back to Los Angeles that night alone, squinting to see the road through the tears in her eyes. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Freddie couldn't find another job right away, so she economized. She got rid of her maid and moved into a cheap apartment above a kindly English couple's garage. She eventually got a two-picture deal at the minor studio Tiffany. She wanted to write serious pictures, historical epics. She had written a 150-page treatment on the life of Goya that she couldn't sell. But the films she had worked on that had actually been made had been light flapper comedies. And in the Hollywood of the 1920s, much like Hollywood of any era, studios weren't in business to help a writer expand her brand. After some lean months, Freddie was happy for the work at Tiffany, but she was disillusioned with screenwriting in general and started fantasizing about quitting the business, moving back to New York or up to San Francisco, and trying her hand at short stories. And then, at a business lunch at Musso and Frank's Grill, where she was enjoying her usual order of the mushroom souffle omelet, Frederica Segor met a man named Ernest Moss. Actually, they had met before. They had both worked at Universal in New York at the same time, but they hadn't taken much notice of one another back then. Now, Ernest, who had been a writer and director of documentary films, was working as a producer at Fox, and Freddie was intrigued. When another meeting brought her to the Fox lot, she found an excuse to drop by Ernest's office. Ernest and Freddie's first date was another party at the Ambassador, but this one, hosted by Fox instead of MGM, was less of an orgy than a family picnic. The couple ended up leaving to go to a burlesque club with John Ford and his wife, Mary. And then Ernest and Freddie drove around together until after dawn. They ended up at Freddie's apartment together. And with the exception of a notable separation, they were together for the next 60 years. They married in August, 1927. And Freddie was so in love that she put her potential career change on hold. 
He restored my faith in the glamorous motion picture business, she later wrote, and I began to view it again with renewed hope that effort and dedication would bring their just rewards. Unfortunately, not long after their marriage, Ernest found himself at the helm of a totally misbegotten project. And when the dust settled, he had been fired from Fox. The newlyweds began writing movies together. And at first, they had no trouble selling their scripts. But none of their sold scripts were made into movies. And they failed to find a studio that would hire them as a screenwriting team. So they took what they could get. Freddie took assignments on her own, writing a scenario here for Fox, putting in a year as a script doctor on Clara Bow films for Paramount there. In 1928, the couple moved to New York, where Ernest took a job at Astoria Studios and then headed a unit producing sound shorts for Paramount. One of the couple's collaborations, called Beef Steak Joe, was inspired by Ernest's father and was the story of a restaurant owner whose crush on his wife's sister destroys his life. Beef Steak Joe was never made, but a friend of theirs essentially stole the story for a Paramount film called The Way of All Flesh. This film starred Emil Jannings as a bank manager, but otherwise, the story details were the same. The Mosses protested to Paramount, where the movie was being made, but this kind of thing happened all the time, and they couldn't sue because if they did, all of their hopes of ever working in Hollywood would disappear. For Freddie, that ambition had already waned, worn down by one disappointment after another, and the prevailing feeling that she was being cheated out of what she deserved and had earned. She told her husband that she wanted to quit the business and wanted him to quit too. But Ernest still had his ambition, and so Freddie put aside her own career and focused on supporting her husband's. But there wasn't much to support. The stock market crashed, and the Mosses lost $10,000. They returned to Los Angeles and spent four years barely working. Like many writers, artists, and intellectuals during the Depression, they began questioning capitalism and subscribed to a number of socialist publications. They went back to New York and worked briefly as theater critics. But by spring of 1937, Freddie was frustrated to the point of needing to force a change. She told Ernest that she was going back to Hollywood alone. He told her that if she did it, it would be grounds for divorce. She went anyway. She didn't want to split up, but she needed to do something. In Hollywood, Freddie was on the verge of signing a deal with Republic Pictures to develop a screwball comedy she had pitched them called A Bill of Goods. But the contract they offered her guaranteed only two weeks of employment, after which point the idea would belong to the studio and Freddie could legally be shown the door. Freddie did the two weeks of work, but refused to sign the contract. At the end of 14 days, she told her supervisor that he could have the outline she had produced 
if they offered her better terms. They wouldn't, and she walked away. It was a kind of victory. She had failed to grovel for crumbs the way she was expected to. But the experience left Freddie feeling more disillusioned than ever. She would attempt to write other ideas that could be pitched to other studios, but she started to feel like there was no point. One way or another, she was bound to get screwed. She contemplated suicide. She actually turned on the oven with the intention of putting her head in it. But she decided that would be selfish, a cop-out. Instead, she sent her estranged husband a telegram. It read, Darling, please return to Los Angeles without further ado. I need you. Freddie eventually found a job as a writer's agent, through which she met and befriended John Houston, Irving Berlin, and Dalton Trumbo, and managed to set in motion a chain of events that would get B.P. Schulberg hired at Selznick International Pictures. Schulberg, the mogul who had taken a chance on her to adapt The Plastic Age many years earlier, was now considered to be washed up. Freddie said her last ambition in Hollywood was to pay Schulberg back for his generosity to her. Still, she and Ernest kept writing, and in 1941, they managed to get four studios vying for a script they had written about the invention of the typewriter. Freddie saw it as a comedy about the battle of the sexes, about women crashing the gates of the male-dominated business world, and the typewriter as the tool that broke the shackles of gender-based servitude and allowed women to seize economic independence. Fox bought the story, but then put it on the shelf for six years, and eventually produced a version that had been rewritten from the top down. Still, the shocking Miss Pilgrim, starring Betty Grable, became a blockbuster. Unfortunately, it busted blocks before the Writers Guild had managed to secure residuals for its members. So after their initial payment, Ernest and Freddie never saw a dime. The shocking Miss Pilgrim would be the last film produced from Freddie's writing. She and Ernest continued to try to sell scripts throughout the 1940s, mostly historical films about subjects like Civil War photographer Matthew Brady and one about a famous set of quintuplets. But after World War II, the couple's dabbling in socialist politics came back to bite them. They were investigated by the FBI and blacklisted from the film industry. Ernest lost a job he was up for making documentaries for the Pentagon when his old subscription to People's World was unearthed. By 1950, when Freddie was 50 and Ernest 59, they had had it. They started putting their affairs in order. They got in their car and drove to a spot perfect for a his and hers suicide. But just as Freddie had that day with the oven, they decided that this wasn't the answer. The answer was to quit Hollywood. The next day, Freddie landed a job as a typist at an insurance company. Ernest went to work as a ghostwriter, authoring texts under the bylines of doctors, lawyers, and others who were expected to publish 
but didn't necessarily possess literary gifts. Freddie ended up working her way up the ladder of the insurance business. Their marriage remained happy until Ernest died of Parkinson's the summer of 1986. Freddie lived another 26 years, dying at the age of 111 in 2012. For as long as she was able, every year on her wedding anniversary, she would go to Musso and Frank and order a sherry and a mushroom souffle omelette. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was written, narrated, and produced by Karina Longworth. That's me. Our editor is Olivia Natt. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our social media assistant is Brendan Whalen. And our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. For more information about this episode and other episodes, please go to our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. There you'll find show notes for every episode with lists of all of our sources and the music used on each episode. And if you go to youmustrememberthispodcast.com slash seduction, You'll find information about how to pre-order the book that this season is related to, Seduction, Sex, Lies, and Stardom in Howard Hughes's Hollywood, written by me. We also have a schedule of events that I'll be doing related to the book, which include book signings, film screenings, and more. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter at Remember This Pod, and we're on Facebook and Instagram, too. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. Yeah.